1: Atlassian. Just having business data isn't enough, but ZoomInfo leverages that data to unlock useful insights like who to reach and how to reach them so you can grow your business. Unlock insights at zoominfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market.
2: What is a model? When I was a kid, a model was a toy that I glued together. When I was a little older, a model was someone who wore fancy clothes. Now that I'm an adult, the term model has more to do with math and statistics.
3: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. We're talking about building things at the end of the show, and uh, there's a good a good discussion online about that. But but first, I think Ezra and I are both. Um, we're not epidemiologists or quantitative modelers of anything, but have been interested in some of these efforts to make projections about what is happening with coronavirus and the way they have captivated our attention in the sort of policy world. And then I think in many cases, proven to not be not be very good guides to anything. And it's a It's a tough problem, right? I mean, this is like, I'm a journalist. I like, I try to talk to experts and figure out what's going on. And, you know, a sort of frustrating reality with this is that it seems like the top experts don't really know how to tell us what's going on.
2: And they don't know what's going on. So I want to frame this conversation in two ways. One, there's a line out there that I like, and I think it's going to be very important here, which is, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And so the question you're dealing with with a model is not, is it going to be right? I mean, a model by its nature is a simplification of reality. And when you're modeling something like coronavirus, where you don't know almost anything about it early on in an epidemic, you are going to be making assumptions that are going to turn out to be wrong. One of the questions here for our ability to learn from things is, are we able to structure this conversation where things can be wrong and then people can update and people can listen and 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 evolve because we're going to have to do that in, in all directions. But I don't even think this is really just a conversation about the models. I mean, the models are reflecting something broader, which is an uncertain state of knowledge when people have to make very certain, very consequential decisions very fast, right? We don't know nearly enough to say, How should we shut down or reopen economies? How should we treat people best? Like, What should the exact social distancing guidance be in a city versus in a rural area versus in a suburb? But we have to make those recommendations anyway. And so then when the models have to be updated, there's understandably a a lot of frustration. But let's talk about, I think, what has been the central model here, the IHME model, which has been revised down from predicting something like 245,000 deaths to predicting something like 60,000. And in both of those cases, the predictions included social distancing efforts. So that is predicting a much less lethal uh, outcome for the virus in in America. And and, and that downward revision, that's a big deal.
3: Yeah, and it's a big deal, and it's it's become a big deal Politically, because the the Trump administration is citing it as evidence of their own successes. Um, other people, sort of early reopeners, skeptics of social distancing, are citing it to say that, well, we got spooked into taking these dramatic measures that were unnecessary uh, by people who basically didn't know what they were talking about. An interesting thing is, as I've tried to dig into this this model, right, what, what's interesting about, about the IHME model is... They are attempting to cope with the lack of information about the underlying virus in an interesting way, which is you might think, okay, to build a model of this disease, I need to know a lot about its properties. And then I need to know a lot about the specific situation. And out of this kind of micro-founded model, I can say what's going to happen. IHME says we don't need to do that which is lucky because to an extent we we can't right and so they have this kind of pure mathematical curve fitting exercise which is that they looked at early outbreaks in china and northern I- italy and they they plotted them right so then they just sort of model it as a mathematical system like this is what happens and then you look at us states and you fit the data points from the U.S. states onto a purely mathematical model from the earlier countries, and you say, okay, here's what I think is going to happen here. If this wasn't a crisis, I think we would say as an abstract intellectual exercise, this is worth a shot it's a promising idea. It's not obviously absurd. And it gets you around a lot of practical difficulties with the kind of trying to build a a bottom-up model. There are a lot of systems in the world that you can model this way, sort of on a high level and ignoring the details. I think what we've learned from IHME, as it's been revised several times as more American data has come in, is just that it doesn't work. Separate from, like, all models have uncertainty associated with them, but they have confidence intervals on this model, and they modeled each of 50 states separately. So you can say, okay, well, did 95% of the states fall within that confidence interval? Like, is this model been specified correctly? And in 70% of cases, it was outside the 95% confidence interval, which is, that's like a
2: big mistake. So in 70% of cases, the outcome is proving differently than the outcome the modelers were ninety five percent certain would happen, right? It's outside that range. Yeah. So it just it is just saying the model is wrong,
3: right? So that's not just like imprecision in your modeling. It means that on some higher order level, like you didn't know what you were doing here. And I mean, I I don't want to be too harsh on this because. It, it seems like a promising approach. Like, I, I don't know that you would say ex-ante that this this wouldn't work, uh, but I think it clearly hasn't worked. And that what's going on now, where they just sort of keep tweaking it with new data, I mean, maybe it will eventually start to make more reliable forecasts. But the real thing we we learned there is that this approach is... Is unsound and that you actually need to, to try to know more on a on a micro level about, about how this works.
2: But let me try to to take a, a not different interpretation of the model, but maybe offer like a a theory about what happened in that model. So as you mentioned, the model is built on what happens in in Wuhan, China, and then what happens in northern Italy. And the model predicts New York City pretty well, actually. Of the things that it predicts effectively, it predicts New York City. And then I think this gets to what is, to me, the single biggest question right now, which is why has there not in America been another New York City? I mean, even the places have gotten really bad, like New Orleans, are not New York City bad. And definitely other places that look in many ways, like New York City, they had early unidentified spread. They're pretty dense. They uh, have a, a pretty significant usage of mass transit, like San Francisco, have not gotten nearly as bad as New York City. And then you might say, well, SF closed down early, but then Florida closed on April 3rd and has this very senior heavy population. Why isn't Florida a total disaster? And- there actually, I've been reporting on this. There's not a great answer to this question, but what seems to me to be happening, and our colleague Brian Resnick wrote a very good piece on, on modeling and modeling uncertainty, and his big argument in that piece was that the thing models have trouble with is human behavior, and particularly what happens if human behavior changes in a systematic or systemic way. And one theory I have about what's going on, which you know comes from talking to, to people who know more than I do about it, is that... What was happening when societies got hit by this hard before they knew it was coming and before they had human behavior had begun to like change in reaction to it is very different than what is happening now when societies get hit by it or cities, states, whatever. And social distancing is either statutorily in place or people are doing it themselves, which was happening in Florida to some degree, even before the governor locked the state down. And... Health systems know better what to look for, et cetera. And so there may be something here that what happened in the IHME model is that it is true that if systems reacted the way Italy and Wuhan and New York City did, that you would have those bad outcomes but that in this world where you've now had this like move of human behavior into this very different space where people are like washing hands a lot and staying away from people and quarantining if they feel sick or not going near friends who have had a cough etc cetera, etc cetera. like maybe you stop the critical mass of spread from happening more easily maybe super spreaders are not getting around in the way they were and so like we've like kind of actually done like a hard shift into a new equilibrium that a model built on these sort of like places that got the first hits of it can't predict for.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's true. I mean, I think there's also other extrinsic factors. I mean, I think there are questions about how the weather and ambient temperature impacts different kinds of things. You know, there are questions about the role of, of UV light and how that impacts different things. And on some level though, I just think part of what we're seeing is that we don't, we don't know all of the relevant issues. I mean, at the very beginning of this, something that somebody said to me was that they thought we were seeing so much spread in Italy because people kiss each other as a customary greeting there, which isn't the case in in every country. That seems to me to have completely dropped out of the dialogue. Still, when I look at a map of Europe, I see the kiss greeting countries as having much worse outbreaks than the handshake countries. I don't know. Like, I'm I'm not an epidemiologist, but like, w- one thing about modeling is that like you choose in a model, right, to simplify, and so you have to make choices about what things you want to put in and what things you don't want to put in. And usually, over time, as we understand systems better, we're able to make reasonable judgments about what kinds of factors to include or neglect. But we don't know the the science of the virus is just not good right now. We have not had people working on this for decades. And we don't know very much about it. And I think it just turns out that extremely high levels of abstraction are not capturing something that's that's really relevant here. I, I was struck by the fact that, you know, like, like a lot of people, I, I sort of heard a lot about Ebola in 2014. But by the time that outbreak occurred, scientists had been working on Ebola for 35 years. Years. It's only recently that we've actually had really large Ebola outbreaks. So it's become a more pressing problem, but it was a subject of scientific curiosity for like decades. And so fortunately, they were able to attack those large outbreaks with a complicated Policy problem, but a really rock solid, like, don't ask me, ask a virologist. And then the virologist will tell you the name of a virologist who studies Ebola. And then that Ebola expert will deliver you, like, the truth from science. And what's frustrating about the the coronavirus situation from a, a journalistic and a citizen, and I hear it from politicians too, standpoint, is that, like, there aren't really experts on this subject because it's a brand new subject like nobody did a dissertation on this nobody like has their book or has taught seminars on, on this subject so everyone who's who's working on everything they're they're sort of making stuff up
2: i wouldn't say making stuff up but there are two dimensions or levels of which this communication happens and one is the science communication and so you'll be talking to a uh, infectious disease expert and 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 you'll be having this conversation and everybody's really careful really cautious about what we don't know really like emphasizes how much um, uncertainty there is in 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 the state of our research here and then there's the level of like science communication mm. and these same experts will get on twitter or like will be in an article. And what they're responding to is a stupid or offensive critique, right? Or like one of these protests outside a governor's mansion where nobody's wearing masks and everybody's demanding everything gets opened up all at once. And they'll get a lot more sure. They like hit that back much harder. So if you ask them, like, what do we know? They'll say, oh, like we probably like 30% of what we know right now is going to be wrong. But then when like faced with like a very wrong or what feels like crudely motivated critique the public communication gets a lot less nuanced and i think it's hard in there to like keep these conversations separate i'm not even saying it's wrong to have the the two levels of of communication but i do think there's a lot of comments from scientists being reported as if those comments were the science mm mm-hmm. And they're different, right? The scientists, like everybody else, are human beings who have opinions and beliefs and are, are, are trying, based on uncertain information, to give the best recommendation they can. And they're afraid of what will happen if worse re- recommendations are followed. But at the same time, and you see this all the time in the climate debate, to fully communicate your uncertainty makes it very hard for like a journalist to quote you or makes it um makes it hard for like people to listen to you you don't like your interviews don't go viral you don't become a big name the most cautious people in this are not the 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 names you're hearing in all the articles and so there's just like by its nature a problem here and it will become a particular problem as we move forward so i think it had like one dimension back early so if you go back a couple of months like Anthony Fauci was saying in February the risk of coronavirus is minuscule and you should worry about the flu. And a lot of journalists, like including people at Vox, and uh like heard this sort of message like, this is probably going to be controlled, like this looks bad, but like don't worry that much about it. This was like what you're hearing in January and into early February. And then they were all saying this kind of worry about the flu thing because the flu, like what they're always angry about is people don't take the flu seriously enough. A lot of people die from it. It's like a bad disease. And It turned out the coronavirus was, for all kinds of reasons, a lot worse than their state of knowledge understood at that time. That asymptomatic transfer was more of an issue. That China did not have it under control. China was like obscuring a bunch of different things, and so then it gets really bad. And I think now there's like this opposite thing where people who got burnt by not taking this seriously enough like really want to make sure they don't make that mistake again. But that makes it hard then to discuss like, well, why is it that the worst predictions and also the worst places don't seem to be happening in, in, in nearly as many spaces. I mean, why isn't Brazil a total catastrophe right now? But also, why is Guayaquil, Ecuador a total catastrophe right now? Like, why isn't South Africa, with its very large immunocompromised population, as big a disaster as people were telling me it was going to be three or four weeks ago? But also, like, you can't look at New York City and not think this can get really bad. So there's something in this, like, tension between the really bad outcomes that have happened and the really bad outcomes that haven't happened that we really do need to be discussing and working our way through. But it's a very, people are afraid to have that discussion just in like nobody wants to be seen now as underestimating it. And it just is a difficult, like you don't know enough to have it. So like everybody kind of wants to err, I think correctly on the side of caution, but it's a politically difficult space to be in um, for the politicians who have to like hold these very difficult policies Um and and try to make them sustainable.
3: It's also worth saying, you know, you were talking about like there's science and then there's science communication, right? But there's also this other thing, which is public health communication. And one thing you see frequently, right, is, you know, somebody like the Surgeon General of the United States, he is a real medical doctor. His expertise is not in infectious diseases or viruses, uh, but like that's okay because he he's Surgeon General because before he had a public health role in Indiana. And you I, I mean, I don't know if he's good at that role or not. But it becomes a distinct role you occupy, which is not doing science or communicating science. It's trying to shape public behavior. But then there's always a question of like, what level of authority is that on? And like, I think it's crystal clear in retrospect that the message that the public health experts in the United States were giving about masks was not based on like bad science or not. Like what they said all along has stayed the same, which is that we need surgical masks for medical professionals. And that N95 respirators will prevent you from inhaling virus, but they need to be fitted right. You need to be a real expert, and we need them for healthcare pros. But that if you're sick, wearing a mask will stop it from spreading elsewhere. They just flipped from saying, because of all those things, don't get a mask, to because of all those things, do get a mask. And the reason they flipped is because they had a shift in understanding of both the amount of asymptomatic transfer, but also I think they had a shift in the understanding of how easy it was to sew cloth masks, right? That like they are not experts in uh, sewing or apparel manufacture or like how Etsy's supply chain works and things like that. So they're trying to give people advice that they can take right and that will accomplish something useful so what they were thinking was tell people to stop hoarding surgical masks is something they can do and that will help it turns out tell people to sew a mask at home is also something you can do but i think they didn't know that not because like their science is bad but because their understanding of sewing or or human psychology was not exactly what it needed to be and you have this a lot i mean i i've been i've been working on this question of like What's up with parks, right? And one person works at city government was telling me, he's like, look, we don't want to tell people that outside transmission is unlikely because then they're going to make plans to meet up with their friends outside. And I I don't know. I'm I'm like listening. I, I see what he's saying. But also, like, that's not a scientific judgment. You know, it's like a just a guess about mass communication. It is, as far as I can tell, factually true that you are unlikely to inhale coronavirus particles while sitting outside. The idea that we should obscure that fact to create a better outcome, like that might be true or it might not be true. But I honestly am not sure what kind of evidence you would even get to sort of make that judgment. But the public health community seems very comfortable with sort of, Reaching a consensus about what direction people need to be steered and then
2: delivering a message that is not 100%
3: factual to try to
2: produce that outcome. I think something you see in a lot of forms of communication is that they they like have their message and then they have their directionality. And people often know the directionality they want to take better than they know the specific message they want to take, or even how to get to that. Like one thing that will often happen um, in stories of different kinds is that there's like a lot of information in the story about like whatever this possible thing is, but there's a a fundamental directionality of is the author of the story trying to get you to worry more about it or less about it. Uh Like, do they want you to worry more about coronavirus or this possible financial crisis or this candidate getting elected or this bill passing or not passing or whatever, um, super volcanoes? Or do they want you to worry less about it? And you can write the story actually with the same information, as you say, both ways, right? Like you can read the same information in two ways, but that you get, you end up with like the headline and the atmospherics of it, a story that like might in many ways be quite caveated, like you think there's an 80-20 chance that this really bad thing won't happen. So is what you want to do to get people to like chill out a little bit because like 80-20, it's going to be fine? Or is what you want to do to like get them to really freak out because 20% it won't be? I mean, a, a, a version of this you saw a lot was at the end of the 2016 election, you had a range of models, but basically the New York Times upshot model and the Nate Silver model were both saying something between like 80-20 for Clinton for the upshot and 70-30 for Clinton for Silver. But in their public communication, like Nate Silver really was emphasizing that 30% is like a real chance Donald Trump gets elected and like... Like, you should think this is possible. And I think the Times did a good job, but they weren't out there, like, trying to, like, hit that message in the same way. And so people who were reading the Times coverage were feeling really good about Clinton. And then, of course, she loses. And so oftentimes, I think that journalists, scientists, politicians, all kinds of people sort of mistake the directionality for the thing itself. And in part, like, also stories with a heavier directionality get shared more. Like, we this great story from Julia Blues in early February. And it was called, um, I forget what it's called, but it was eight scenarios for coronavirus, right? This was like before we really knew what was going on and she had four scenarios in which it gets really bad and four in which it doesn't. And like, I thought that story was so good because like we didn't know a lot and it was a really good way of showing what we didn't know. But also that story did not, do that well. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> Be,
2: like it's not the story that like got shared or even in retrospect, as good as I think it is, the story that like people want to talk about because like people want to talk about things with a very strong directionality to them, like a clear message. And so just like also in the generalized like content world, the things with a strong directionality rise to the top. And so I don't know, I think this is making all conversations of an uncertain issue much harder because it's the models with a strong directionality and their message that are getting a lot of attention. And then it's like messaging with a strong directionality that gets a lot of attention. It's There are a lot of epidemiologists out there, but some of them are getting more famous than others right now. And like, they're the ones with, I would say, spicier public presences. And like, it all kind of like stacks on top of itself to take something where there's a lot of uncertainty at the base of it and create at the end of it, much more certain feeling messaging but then as things change and i think a, a hard part about this is i think we're going to end up here in an equilibrium where like on the one hand if this gets out of control in the wrong population it's unbelievably catastrophically bad and on the other hand i think it is actually somewhat more reliably controllable than we feared at the beginning and that's going to make people feel that it's not that bad and then it'll get you know and so we're like like bounce back and forth between like doing too much and doing too little um or people feeling like we're doing too much and doing too little in a way that is not going to have good outcomes for anybody.
3: Let's take a break and then let's talk about that and the difficulty of sort of probabilistic forecasting.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help define and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds.
3: I've been looking at at the state of Georgia. You know, Governor Brian Kemp is moving to to open things up relatively fast. And like a lot of people, uh, you know, on the internet, I have a kind of a, a sinking feeling about it. Uh, but when, when I look at what what he's putting forward, I, I feel frightened. It seems unwise. Then I also see a lot of people sort of, you know, dunking on him and saying this is going to be a disaster. And that gives me its own sinking feeling. Because if you look at it and you, you look at this situation, you say, OK, if Georgia does what Kemp is saying there is a 35% chance that metro Atlanta gets hit as hard as metro New York got hit. That strikes me as an incredibly unwise risk to run, right? If you, like, do the population of Atlanta, you multiply by 0.35, you say, look, in expectation, he is costing thousands of people their lives here, and that's a really bad idea. But also, I mean, I'm making up the 35% chance, but I'm, I'm trying to convey uncertainty here if you run a 35% chance of catastrophe, catastrophe probably won't happen. And if everybody is like, holy shit, this is going to be a catastrophe, and then the most likely scenario rolls out and it's not a catastrophe, then you've lost your credibility when seven more states are like, aha, look at the naysayers. But if 10 states all do something that has a 35% chance of ending in catastrophe, several states are going to end up in catastrophe and that's a really bad idea but i don't know how to write a pithy tweet that is like most likely this will be okay but it's a very unwise risk anyway like that doesn't that's not a good prediction and then conversely you know when people look back at people who they say like oh these are the this is the guy who got coronavirus right it's never that somebody wrote on January 27th, I think there's a 5% chance that this becomes a global pandemic, and that's a really bad, and we should take that seriously. It's somebody who on January 27th was like, I am absolutely certain that this will be a global pandemic. And of course, in retrospect, that's quote unquote, getting it right. But like, there was no way to know that. On January 27th, right? I wish I was more alarmed. I was kind of reading these things where people were like, it's probably going to be fine. And I was like, la da it'll probably be fine. But, you know, like small chances of bad outcomes are a big deal, but it's hard to convey them without being hysterical and then randomly somebody who was just guessing turns out to be the person who was right.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. I want to go back to the Georgia thing though for a minute because I think there's like some interesting things tucked in there. One is that like on the list of things that make me very nervous, there was a preprint article that came out and what it did was it looked at like everywhere in the US by a bunch of the factors that make a population more vulnerable to COVID-19. So, all kinds of Comorbidities like hypertension and cardiovascular issues and 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 lung issues, weak health systems, bunch of other things, uh, age, obviously. And if you look at that heat map, and like you just look at where looks worst on the heat map, it's Georgia. Yeah. So you're opening this up. I mean, it's Georgia and Florida and like a couple of areas in that southeastern belt. So you're opening this up in one of the most vulnerable populations, which is really scary. At the same time. One thing I don't think we know, particularly in areas that are not as dense as New York City, is how much social distancing and closure do you need to get most of the effect?
0: Right.
2: And Brian Kemp saying that he's going to open up like nail salons and bowling alleys. As you wrote in, a, I think, a really good piece on you can't just save the economy by reopening the economy. A lot of people aren't going to go. A lot of people were social distancing in Florida before Governor DeSantis decided to actually close the state on April 3rd. And so one thing that may happen here is Kemp reopens Georgia. Georgia like does not really reopen in the sense that a lot of Georgians like do not feel like taking this risk. And there's like social pressure not to. And so it's sort of like he it basically moves a needle like 20% towards reopening, but that actually isn't enough to create a catastrophe in. In this sort of new equilibrium, where again, like the system knows the health system knows what it's looking for, like people are washing their hands, they're wearing face masks there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, maybe it does create a total disaster, but I think there's also going to be this potential for an outcome where like Kemp has officially reopened Georgia, but like people in Georgia haven't followed the reopening path. And so it looks like he was right to reopen. But what actually happened is social distancing continued. It's going to be very hard to track and understand some of these things correctly in a way that I think is going to make it very... We're not really running experiments here, right? It's not like what we're doing is like we've got like a control place in social distancing and then we're like paying Georgians to go out and like re redo their normal lives we're just going to see what happens like people are also making their own individual calls here and i do think something that has been happening is that social distancing is a powerful individual phenomenon as well and i think it's working on that level pretty Effectively, and that's part of why states that uh, closed later did not actually get as bad outbreaks as we feared. And I think it's also potentially why this Kemp thing, as bad as it looks to me, may not be as bad as I worry it'll be because he doesn't actually have the power to like reopen Georgia. I mean, he can reopen it, but he can't make any he can't make people go to things in the numbers they were before.
3: Well, and then you get really into a question of how do we model the human behavior, right? If you say okay, things are opened up, but For the first two weeks, everybody's incredibly cautious, but nobody knows how cautious everybody is being exactly, because it's not that well indexed. And then it goes pretty well. So then everybody gets less cautious and it could get much worse again. And, you know, we just don't know. Right. Like, I don't have a guess as to, like, how will churches in Georgia operate in a post- reopening environment? And how will the parishioners sort of respond? Because that strikes me as the, in like exurban, sunbelty America, the sort of most plausible avenue for super spreading is, is in church services, because uh, th- there's no subway car to be packed. Um, there no, I don't want to say no, but most people aren't living in apartment buildings. Uh, but just because you have a low residential density... Doesn't mean you never have crowds, and so it's like, well, what do people actually do in those kind of situations, and are we even going to be paying attention to what they do so that we can learn something for for the future, right? Because this is like uh, one of the things is in general you would never try to model what's going to happen in Dallas based on data from Milan, right? Those are very different cities. But it's like you're doing the best you can with the data available. But if we really track like what everybody does in Atlanta, that could be very informative. But as far as I can tell, we're not there's no plan to do that. Right. Like nobody is volunteering themselves. We did have the mayor of Las Vegas like use the phrase control group on a television interview. But all she seemed to be saying was, well, she wanted to get her casinos back open because the city needs the tax revenue. Uh, But I think I mean, My overwhelming guess is that nobody is going to book a flight to Las Vegas to go gambling, no matter what the mayor says there. You know,
2: you shouldn't overrate the sort of public officials' ability to drive human behavior. I think that's right. Do you want to take a break, speaking of public officials' ability to drive behavior and talk about building?
0: Let's do it. Let's build. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com.
1: Atlassian. Before Zoom Info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. But today, Zoom Info aligns your sales and marketing teams, identifies ideal customers faster, and automates your go-to-market strategy. So you can scale up and get on the fast track to marketplace domination. And that's how winners win. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo: How business goes to market.
3: Mark Andreessen, who um, developed the Mosaic web browser like a bajillion years ago, which was like the, the pioneering web browser for, for the world, and he he made some money off that, even though it was never actually a commercially viable product, and then became uh, the sort of co-founder and head of, I think it's the biggest venture capital firm in America, in, in the world, Andreessen Horowitz. And That means he's a he's a person with like incredible sort of influence and reputation in Silicon Valley. He's invested in a million important companies. He invented one of the most important underlying technologies. And for a while, he sort of dabbled in a public intellectual space a lot on Twitter and elsewhere. He really kind of stepped back from that recently and then reemerged from the ether with a Blog post uh, called "It's Time to Build," saying that you know the the lesson of coronavirus was that it's kind of along the lines of like this once great nation like can't get things done anymore. Like we don't have any swabs. There's no houses in the Bay Area. All of our infrastructure is garbage, and it's time for us to to fix everything. And I saw a lot of people really excited about this, ranging from, you know, libertarianish kind of intellectuals, but also more kind of center-left people. I think a lot of folks who like to think of themselves as forward-thinking, non-ideologically dogmatic sort of what we used to call radical center, sorts of line of thought. I think we're we're really into this essay, and it became a sort of a, a shelling point uh, for people who wanted to express their enthusiasm for the idea that we've got to we've got to start getting things done. Um, and you wrote a a, a well trafficked and received sort of uh, re- response essay to this about like what is actually stopping us from building.
2: So in a lot of ways, I liked Andreessen's essay a lot. Like. I want to build more, too, and I think a lot of people want to build more. And in some ways, that's like the nut of my response to it, which is in a couple key moments in his essay, he frames the problem as people don't seem to want to build or people don't seem to like have a yen for building. So like up top, he's like expecting a bunch of criticism. And he says, like, here's a modest proposal to my critics. Like instead of criticizing me, why don't you say what you want to build? Like chances are I will agree with it. And then at the end, his solution on building, and and I'm going to quote this, is building isn't easy or we'd already be doing all this. We need to demand more of our political leaders, of our CEOs, our entrepreneurs, our investors. We need to demand more of our culture, of our society, and we need to demand more of one another. We're all necessary and we can all contribute to building. Every step of the way to everyone around us, we should be asking the question, what are you building? What are you building directly or helping other people to build or teaching other people to build or taking care of people who are building? And this is where – I don't want to say I like get off the train because I agree with all that. Like We need to demand more of people and we should encourage people to build. But this is like the classic Silicon Valley political like disagreement, which is you have to take the institutional problems here seriously like i like people want to build things like they entrepreneurs want to build things developers want to build houses including in the bay area that's why there are these big fights at at, at planning meetings and even in like the epicenter of supposed stagnation washington dc if you cover congress for any amount of time and like you and i have covered it for 20 years it's just full of bills. Like people want to build all kinds of things: new healthcare systems, new so- new social insurance systems, um, decarbonizing the U.S. economy, new education systems. Like everything, like infrastructure, it's always going to be infrastructure week, and it doesn't work. And so. I guess like what I would say is what we need to do is rebuild institutions. And like I make the argument in this piece that we've become a vitocracy, which is a a term from Francis Fukuyama, where too many different actors can veto things at all levels. With the federal government, people have heard me talk about this forever. You have things like... The filibuster and polarization and the way we decentralize power in a system that requires very high levels of compromise and consensus to function makes it impossible for really anybody to do anything. And at the state and local level, which is more a space you focus on, Matt, I sort of talk about some of these arguments and essays that progressives and their skepticism of power have created a like form of constant representation that actually ends up only representing like the status quo and nimbyistic interests because like the people who show up to these things are there to stop things and we've made it like we've built all these things to stop power from being wielded unwisely but we've made it impossible at these levels to even wield it wisely and in addition to that you have conservatives who actively are trying to make state government and local government work what i would call poorly and Andreessen talks about how bad we've been at getting, say, unemployment insurance out the door. But like in Florida, that is because a Republican governor of Florida built an unemployment insurance system meant to make it hard to get unemployment insurance. Like It was a successful effort at building that leads to an unsuccessful country. And then in the capital markets and in business more generally, and that's the space Andreessen obviously knows better than I do, like you have this short term shareholder capitalism that leads to like the market constantly vetoing anything that's going to fuck with quarterly profits. Um, Andreessen, to his credit, has joined on with Eric Reese in this effort to create like a long term stock exchange. But I think like taking more seriously the ways in which kind of advanced capitalism and hyper-efficiency creates the kinds of like just-in-time, very fragile supply chains um, that he's like lamenting on cotton swabs and reagents, like it needs to be taken seriously. And the problem is people want to build all kinds of things. What they don't want to do is like patiently engage in reforming very frustrating and annoying institutions filled with people who want things to be the way they've been for a long time.
3: Well, I think I would. say about Idris's essay is that, you know, like a lot of things that get written on the spur of the moment, there's like different ways to kind of read it. And and one way I've seen a lot of people read it is as a kind of like a tech godfather throwing a bomb from the West Coast at politics. And I think if you read it that way, it's not that persuasive. Um, Although, you know, he he cites Connor Doherty's book about housing in, in the Bay Area. We had, Connor on on the weeds and, you know, that it suggests a a grounding and some understanding of some specifics of the political situation. But I think it's like a a macro diagnosis, as you say, like people don't want to build enough, does not really explain anything in the federal government. Another way of looking at it is as a kind of tech industry godfather saying something to his peers, or to his his followers, and those sort of come under him. And in that view, I give it more credit, actually, because it, it's true that there's a question about like, what do capital markets want to allocate capital to? But there's also a question as to what do human agents want to educate their personal talents to, particularly people who are smart and hardworking and are in sort of high demand as people command good salaries in a variety of different locations and and I remember I was at a, a social event last year and you know it's one of these things where you get seated at a table where some of the people there know each other and you don't know them and it was it was two people who you know work in in machine learning on the west coast somewhere and one of them was working on basically like speech to text Transcription. And one of them was working on uh, algorithmic lending. And, you know, I'm a pain in the ass. So I, I was talking to these people. And the upshot of efforts at algorithmic lending is that banks want to find a way to violate civil rights law in a way that's legal, is like what it comes down to. Like, if you can successfully identify like strong correlates of being African American and then steer loans away away from those people, you will gain a market edge over traditional underwriting where that's going to be illegal. There is absolutely a valid business opportunity there, but it like, strikes me as a shitty thing to do with your life. And like, I really wanted this woman who was working on speech-to-text transcription to like ruthlessly dunk on this other machine learning guy, because I would really like automated transcription of interviews to be, like, much easier and and cheaper. Like, I could go on and on and on about the benefits to the world of improving that kind of technology, and I could go on and on about the, like, likely harms to the world of improving the algorithmic lending technology. From a computer science perspective, these are both hard problems to crack. And, like, investors are going to try to make money, but, like, you can't force people to, like, do something... Worthless with their lives. And in that spirit, like, I do think having more people ask themselves the question, What am I building here? Not like, Will this operate at scale and have a moat, which are like the business buzzwords, but like, What am I creating here? And am I going to be proud of it? Are people going to be like, We're really glad this thing happened? Which is not to say, like, it's not that they don't. Like, lots of things in the tech world, I think, do have that quality. Like, they're really good and they're really useful. But there's a tendency on both, like, critics and, like, defensive people to, like, lump tech together. When, like, any other sector of society, like, people are actually doing very different things there. Some of which have incredible value and some of which are, like, kind of dumb and Getting like smart, hardworking people to try to orient themselves to building things that are worthwhile seems like a like a really valuable endeavor to me.
2: I, I agree with all that. And I being good is better than being bad. That is that is true. <laughs> and to the extent that's the point, like I'm I'm there. I also think in a way that um was really interesting in the essay, although it was not something Andreessen said explicitly. It seemed to me the essay was fitting into a debate inside Silicon Valley that Andreessen has often been understood as on the other side of. Mm -hmm. So Andreessen has this very famous line, software is eating the world. And the idea basically is that huge amounts of like economic um, activity are going to now be like built on top of a software overlay, you know, so like, you're not going to like hail your cab. You're going to like use your Uber app and things. And if you can figure out like how to build these software um, platforms, you have these almost infinitely scalable, super multi-billion dollar industries that you can um, like profit from. And Andreessen and A160 in general have done that really well. I mean, he's an early Facebook investor who is on Facebook's board even today. But then there's been, in recent years, this critique coming from people like Peter Thiel that Silicon Valley has over-invested in bits and under-invested in atoms. They're making too much software and funding too much software and not funding like actual building of things in the real world. And so like the person who's sort of the, the, the counter-example of this is like Elon Musk, who— For all of his um, like color as a character, like actually makes spacecraft. And automobiles, cars, solar, and panels. solar panels. Yeah, you can, you can. Touch yeah. like Elon you can Musk's touch product. the stuff. You can drive it. Like it's quite amazing um, technology, and it means that he is constantly, um, like, dealing with federal regulators and convincing them to let him do things. And he took a big loan from the Department of Energy. Um, same program that led to Solyndra helped save Tesla, actually, which people do not know in the way I wish they did. And so, like, Musk is like he's really he's been using the software stuff, but he's been making. Atoms, right? And like trying to solve things like, you know, he cares about electric cars because of climate change, like in theory, he cares about colonizing Mars because, you know, he believes we're going to destroy um Earth eventually. And so some of it can be a little dystopic, but but I think it's fundamentally a very admirable project. And I don't know the full range of what A160 has funded, but but they've been really strong at funding software companies. And if you look at this Mark Andreessen essay, it is very heavily about things you would build physically, like cotton swabs, ventilators, different approaches to schooling, where you need to like deal with huge numbers. He talks about like tutoring as a like a like the next space of schooling, which is great. But like that's a huge, super labor-intensive thing. He was he didn't talk about MOOCs as the answer to the future of schooling, um, building more homes. And I think something that has been true, like in Silicon Valley, and I don't say it as a criticism at all. I think it was a very natural thing to have happened. But now it, it's like the like the low hanging fruit got picked. Is that if you could create software, and including like your lending example here, your algorithmic lending example, is a good example of a very bad way of implementing this. If you can try to disrupt things through creating new software platforms, you can often evade the old systems of like regulation and accountability that made it hard to make new things, right? Like you didn't have to deal with as many like OSHA regulations if you like automated your factory, for instance, that kind of thing. And the more that like we have to build real things in the real world using real people, the more you end up having to deal with these institutions that I'm talking about, like much bigger like infusions of capital from capital markets. Like if you want to do a huge manufacturing play, you can't take 300,000 in seed investment, mm-hmm. right? You need millions and millions of dollars to do something at that level. And so you end up having to go through all these institutions like stock markets and local regulators and you know the federal government and laws and is this legal and will the FDA approve it? And so I don't think of like what I'm saying really is actually even in opposition to what Andreessen is saying, but if what he is doing is trying to push his own peer network into investing in the real world, like into investing more into atoms, building more stuff, more things. Well, that like pushes you back towards our regulatory structure, which increasingly software is going to be under also because like regulators are figuring this stuff out. And so you, in my view, like you do need... To build institutions so they can be more action-oriented as opposed to being quite so veto-oriented, and obviously, I'm a fan of a lot of forms of effective regulation. So my point isn't that you should be like free season to build whatever you want and get people sick, but things should be quick, they should be fast, they should be well done, and like Congress should be able to say appropriate the money to decarbonize the economy. And so, like, I, I think that like this is a way in which. You can't use the thinking of software exactly for, like, what he wants to do. Um, You can't just exhort people to go into tech Mm -hmm. firms. Like, you actually do, like, have to engage with the institutions, which I think there's a genuine thing where the entrepreneurial personality is often very impatient. I, like, live out here. I know a lot of these people. And it makes dealing with, like, regulators super frustrating and, like, engaging with, like long-term efforts like filibuster reform. Like, it just, you want to build something and have it happen. And so in some ways, I think there's actually a bit of a tension between the personality that builds and, like, the personality that reforms. But, like, somehow, like, you need to, you need to combine those. Well,
3: the other thing, why well, two
2: sort of further thoughts on this. Like, one is that everybody finds it frustrating when the
3: government doesn't work well on something they think is important. But also a, a lurking threat, you know, that people are aware of is that, a well-functioning democratic government will exploit the fact that the median income is much, much lower than the mean income and will tend to redistribute wealth downward. So it's, it's always a question in my mind of like, do elite players in the American business community want the government to work well or don't they? You know, and you can find various efforts to thread the needle, like Tyler Cohen did his post about state capacity libertarianism, which is to say, like, what if the government did work well, but didn't do the things I don't want it to do? But like a well-functioning democratic government is going to do a lot of income redistribution. There's just like no way around that. And like, particularly because the public services will be really high quality. Like, by hypothesis, people are going to want to fund them by taxing the rich, and you won't have all these veto points. So, like, people won't be able to just kind of hold that up. I hope that people who are looking at coronavirus and are frustrated by the lack of state efficacy are going to, like, bite that bullet and say, like, yeah, like, if this means Social Security benefits go up and taxes go up, like, I'm I'm all for it. We, we need a functioning government. But, like, it's not a they're not unrelated issues it seems to me the other thing that's interesting you know you were talking about uh, adams versus bits right and and one thing that's relevant here is the the financing model because the whole reason we have venture capital so closely associated with the idea of software right is you can't get a bank loan for the proposition, I'm going to like hire some guys in hoodies and we're going to write some code that will be good because the bank's going to say, like, well, what do I repossess if this doesn't work out? And the answer is nothing like code that doesn't work or like old soda. Like, it's you know, it, it doesn't make sense. Right. So you you need an investor who is going to run the risk that his investment goes to zero and in exchange, that investor wants to be able to ride the elevator like all the way to the top. And that's venture capital, right? When you're doing atoms, if you say like, I want to open a restaurant, you go to a bank and you get a loan because if your restaurant fails, well, you've got a built out kitchen, right? It's got all the equipment. you got tables. There's like actually something for them to, to take. And then the the bank doesn't get nearly as much of the upside as, as a VC would. And- you can have like venture capitalists you know investing in physical things and you can have banks lending to software companies and there's companies like apple that sort of straddle the divide between between bits and atoms but there is a real sort of distinction there conceptually and it's like if you're a venture capitalist and you get frustrated with everything being these kind of like weightless software companies I think like you're gonna actually have to get out of venture capital as a as a line of endeavor. It would not make sense to make VC investments in building hospitals, which is like one of the things he says. He's like, let's like build the hospital of the future, which like I think would be a good idea too. But like the the financing model for that like wouldn't make sense because even if your hospital was incredible, you're not gonna get like a hundred X exit out of that. Like it's still a freaking hospital and it needs a whole different sort of mentality. And so I don't know, like I, I I couldn't tell like if the essay was meant to be like reflective in that sense or was just like brushing
2: past it. To go back to something you were talking about earlier in that, which is this issue of like ideological disagreement over what to build, right? If you have a democratic government that works well, it might do more um, redistribution, and obviously Democrats are worried if you have a Republican government that is not um, captured or stopped by the filibuster and other kinds of veto points, it will, you know, further restrict reproductive rights or it will cut taxes on rich people or do all kinds of things deregulate the Democrats don't like, and that's why in my essay, one of the the arguments I make is that we actually need to try to make institutions action oriented without that being secondary to what the action they take is like we need to be more comfortable with the problems of like accountability than the problems of paralysis like right mm-hmm. now we prefer like like i can't get what i want done but at least you can't get what you want done either and like i would prefer to say Like, if I win an election, I can get what I want done. And if you win the election, you can get what you want done. And and both those will work. Like, I think Andreessen, who says in in his piece, like, well, a lot of he says energy people think we could just solve the clean energy problem with a few thousand um, of these next generation zero emission nuclear reactors. And like I emailed some people I know on clean energy and asked, is that possible? And they didn't think it was. But. There are a lot of people who care a lot about clean energy and particularly from a technology perspective who are furious at the degree to which Democrats and particularly the more like left side of the party, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are just like like taking nuclear basically off the table. And I think they're right to be upset about that. Like, that's really the point that if you like right now, nobody can do their thing. So it's like Bernie Sanders or for that matter, Joe Biden probably can't do like their climate change plan, but nor can whoever Andreessen would prefer do their like nuclear energy reactor plan. And so like what I would like to see is just institutions oriented towards action as opposed to institutions oriented towards paralysis. I mean, something that this is all coming in the context of is after a long time where Silicon Valley was like the god that hadn't yet failed in America. In the past couple of years, there's been this big tech backlash, a lot of attention on like move fast and break things now, not as like an awesome motto on which to found a company, but all the dangers and irresponsibility is encoded in there. And then I think in this coronavirus period, there's been this sort of a little bit move back to saying you know, man, wouldn't you prefer the problems of disruption to the problems of stagnation and, and and paralysis? And like, I think that that basic idea is correct. Um, And that in like, like, yes, I think Silicon Valley like could be pulled back a little bit and has been for that matter, towards like thinking more seriously about like downstream social impacts of what they do. But a lot of other institutions you need to be pushed way forward towards being willing for things to go a little bit more wrong other big things can go way more right but it's hard to get people to focus on that like i mean this has been getting us all the way out of the context of entries and like my thing throughout this whole democratic primary has been Stop telling me like what your imaginary plan is. Like, what are you going to do to institutions to make it possible to pass any plan whatsoever? And like, I've asked that in every candidate interview I've done, and I don't at all believe Joe Biden is going to come in and the first thing he's going to do is like a massive package of structural reforms. Maybe I'm wrong. I would like to believe that I am, but like, I don't see evidence of it, and so I don't think his agenda will be successful as I want it to be. Although who knows? Maybe we have 23 percent unemployment, and that totally wipes out Republicans in the <laughs> Senate, and like creates a creates a, an equilibrium. I was. Expecting. Um, But yeah, like people are going to argue about what to build. Like, that's okay. I would prefer a world where all kinds of people get to try building things within at least within like some reasonable limits, as opposed to a world in which almost nobody can build things because like everybody can veto them. And like the sucker we all take is that, well, if we didn't create the thing that we had hoped to do to solve the world's problems, well, at least nor did those other guys.
3: Yeah, I mean, there is just like a question about
2: about risk, though, because it's like
3: one place where I do think that like. Right of center business people and left of center writers kind of like meet as have have a melding of the minds is in having like a lot more openness to experience, risk tolerance, and um like comfort with ambiguity than the typical person. And I never know exactly what to what to make of that because i I simultaneously think that I am correct. That, like, American society is too small C conservative, like, about things sort of uh, along the way that, that you were saying. And it would be better to let, like, 10 disasters go forward, but also have 15 triumphs. And the question of, like, well, is that just, like, my aesthetics that people authentically disagree with? That, like, this is the, like, most prosperous society, you know, ever Built, uh, most people have it have it pretty good in America. Um, something like we've seen with with coronavirus is like we were talking about this in the models. Um, it seems like the typical American really does not want to get coronavirus and get sick. People are being quite conservative with their actual personal behavior in a way that has surprised public health researchers who thought they would be more reckless and seems to be frustrating supply side economists who like really want us to like not just like they want to lift formal restrictions like they want the economy to get going again and like we had um what was the lieutenant governor of texas saying like there's more important things than living which you know like on some level it's true right i mean it's like people do things that carry some risk of death all the time but like most people just seem fairly cautious in their lives, like separate from institutional dynamics. And uh, th- uh, this nuclear stuff is a great example. You know, I, I, I did a, did an interview with one of these like new nuclear enthusiasts and, you know, I posted it, I wrote an article and all kinds of people wrote into me like, and they were like, oh, you're going to put a nuclear plant in your basement? And I was like, I don't know, like probably, <laughs> uh- <laughs> Like, they seemed safe to me, but it was just like not the mass reaction to like next generation nuclear reactors that I was hoping for it to be the case that it's like just like seven hippies and like a bad institutional structure at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that was blocking these next generation nuclear devices. But just like all kinds of people were coming out of the woodwork to tell me that was a terrible idea. And hadn't I seen the Chernobyl miniseries? And like, what are we going to do? I have not seen the Chernobyl mini series.
2: I haven't either. I, there's there's never been a night. I, I know I need to, but there's never been a night, right, given what's going on in the world where I feel like like emotionally able to handle that.
3: Yes, exactly. But so maybe I'll change my whole view around. Okay, so uh, stay safe out there, everyone. Despite my exhortations, tell me if the Chernobyl miniseries is good. Hop into the Weeds Facebook group, uh, send us an email, uh, whatever you got. Um, thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.
1: Businesses love data, like really love it. But is just having data enough? Yeah. Nope. Oh. Because the smart businesses, the really smart ones, use ZoomInfo. It leverages data to unlock useful insights. Insights so you know who to reach and how to reach them, letting you grow your business. So ask yourself, is your data insightful? Now it is. Unlock insights. Engage customers. Win faster at zoominfo.com. ZoomInfo. How business goes to market.